It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. The best ability is availability. You know, if you don't miss any games, if you're able to come to practice every single day, if you're able to keep your body healthy, then it's going to result in a better ability than, than making plays. Alejandro Villanueva recently retired as an offensive tackle for the Baltimore Ravens of the NFL. He never missed a game in his seven-year career and was selected for the Pro Bowl twice. He even caught a touchdown pass. Al grew up the son of Spanish parents in the U.S. while his dad worked for NATO and played football while attending West Point. He then became an Army Ranger and served three tours in Afghanistan, earning a Bronze Star with Combat V for rescuing wounded soldiers while under enemy fire. Al joined the NFL in 2014 as a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers where he played for six seasons before signing with the Baltimore Ravens. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Duncan. Slow-steeped, ultra-smooth, Duncan cold brew should be at the top of any adrenaline seekers checklist. We caught up with Al to talk to him about life in the trenches not long after he announced his retirement. Welcome to the Adrenaline Zone, and congratulations on your recent retirement announcement. We're going to ask you later what's coming next, but let's start all the way back at the beginning. You took a different path to the NFL than the average player. Tell us a little bit about growing up in a military family and deciding to go to West Point and what your experience was like while you were there. Yeah, so I grew up in a, in a military environment, but maybe a, a different military environment than the most uh, U.S. service members. My, my father was in the Spanish Navy, and uh, we were stationed all around the world, but primarily in Rota Naval Station, which is a joint American and Spanish military installation. I grew up watching Marines work out and get ready to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I also grew up watching bullfighters, you know, get ready for their, their Sunday ordeal. When I had to decide uh, what I was going to do in my life, I was very inspired by the, the few, the pride, the Marines, the identity of the warriors and the, the, the concept of, of joining something that was bigger than yourself. So I applied to a, a Naval Academy and uh, United States Military Academy. But when it's time for me to do my physical to get in in Kaiserslautern, Germany, uh, I found out that I was colorblind or I had a color deficiency. And so most of the jobs in the Navy were not something that I could do. And so I went to the, to the military academy, walked onto the football team, you know, served my time as an infantry officer. And then when it was time for me to get out of the military and, 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 and move on with my life, I decided I had this crazy idea that if I play one year of football in the NFL, I would be able to pay for my business school, which is the path that most graduates take, you know, after uh, their commitment. Because we're told that if you go to the academies, that that degree will take you very, very far. But the reality is that things are becoming very competitive and, uh, and you always need to have higher education. So unfortunately, it is very expensive to, to go to a top business school. And I recently just got married. So I thought that the NFL, maybe fooling a coach into thinking that I could play football would be 
a path into, you know, educating myself and moving on with my life. So that's the path. That's those are my intentions. And, you know, it'll work out, I guess. So Al, we have a lot to talk about on the side because I was privileged to have a Spanish Navy ship in my strike group and they taught me how to cook paella. So you and I have to give that a shot sometime. You know, I have to say, it's kind of funny to hear that the NFL was a methods to a different path. Most people think, oh, I'm going to be a football player and that's my goal for you. It's like, I'm going to be a football player so I can go get my MBA. Right, right. <laughs> that's hilarious. It's a man with a strategy. I like <laughs> yeah. it. I gave myself maybe a 2% chance of being able to get into the NFL. After I completed my first year, I was, I was very eager to go to Stanford or, or Chicago or Harvard. But the NFL was working out. You know, I was able to play football. And fortunately, I was lucky enough to, to have Carnegie Mellon out in Pittsburgh. And so I was able to apply, go to Carnegie Mellon and play football and uh, go to school. Now, you didn't go directly into the NFL, though, right? You, you hoped to get drafted right after the military academy, but that didn't quite work out then, right? No, I mean, I was, I was not even a good football player in college. I had a chance to go and join mini camps. So, you know, for those who don't understand the paths into the NFL, the NFL is a marketing company and also a football organization. So marketing is, is their primary goal in terms of selling to audiences, you know, whatever it is that they think is going to you know, create the most amount of revenue. In the year 2014, the, the year that I got picked up after my, my army commitment, there was a lot of marketing revolving the military and the troops and all the movies that were coming out of Navy SEALs and, and books. And so the NFL was utilizing the military as a way of connecting to the public. And my goal was to fit into this sort of marketing strategy and be able to play for one year so that I could pay for business school. They have several tryouts on the weekends called mini camps for the rookies. And they also have practice squads. So I got invited to go to uh, mini camps after I graduated. So a weekend where you practice with the draft picks. And then I got the next level, which was practice squad, where you get to practice against the starters so that they don't get hurt. And that was the opportunity that I got with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I got a Rookie mini camps with the Cincinnati Bengals, the Chicago Bears, and the Philadelphia Eagles. And then I got a chance to join the team and be part of the 53-man roster with the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. But the path is not is not the same for everybody. And for me, especially coming out of college, and with both wars going on, I never hoped and I never wanted to, to, to get drafted. So I never had that opportunity. But I do know that it is somewhat of a um, controversial issue in the academies, uh, whether they should be able to go straight into the professional leagues or they should have to serve first. Fortunately for me, I never had to make that decision. I was never drafted and I never hoped to get drafted. I was hoping to get drafted by 10th Mountain Division and, uh, <laughs> and I did. So. so you went through infantry, airborne and ranger schools, all challenging in their own right. And you did find yourself in the 10th Mountain Division. Tell our listeners about that journey. Yeah. So it, Graduating from the academy in 2010 was a very interesting time frame in, in our nation's history. I imagine that just like schools such as Harvard or Stanford, there's a, there's a culture of a competitive culture of getting the best jobs and, and being able to get internships with the top companies or, or startups or whatnot. At West Point, there was a sense of urgency of serving and being at the tip of the spear. So. Infantry was the most requested branch, 
and the cadets were very aware of the personnel charts of what unit was going where. I got a tip the last second before I picked my post that 10th Mount Division was going to be sent to Afghanistan from Iraq. So instead of deploying to Iraq, because the, that theater was shutting down, they were going to send them uh, as part of the surge that Obama announced in the year 2010 at West Point to Kandahar province. And that would be the hottest area and that would be the place where you want it to be. So I know that for some people it might seem counterintuitive, you know, that you would want to be in the front lines and you want to be uh, where the action is. But, you know, the culture at West Point, especially when it came down to men at the, at the time, since women were not allowed to serve in the infantry, was to volunteer for these assignments and serve to the best of your uh, ability. So I got the tip. 10th Mount Division was going to Kandahar province, and I selected that post. And then after that, when I looked at the timeline, I graduated in May. I had to get all my schooling done at Fort Benning, you know, infantry basic leadership course, ranger school, and airborne school. And I had to get it done all before March, where my unit was deploying. So it was a very stressful time in my life. And then once I finished it up, I deployed. And then a month into the deployment, uh, a lieutenant got hurt, and I became the platoon leader. And then you know, the rest of the time was history. So it was run to the sound of the guns. Great. Yeah. So when you got to Afghanistan, you know, clearly you, you had this desire to be on the front lines. What'd you think? What did you learn? I mean, that's quite an adventure, really. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, um, it's a tough question. So I had a, a very romanticized idea mm. of what it was like to be at war, what it was like to see combat. And just like all human beings, those romanticized ideas fade away with time as you get older. So uh, when I was younger, I definitely had this vision, this sort of Lieutenant Dan idea of, of who I was and what my destiny was supposed to be. But the reality is that the war was a lot more complex mm -hmm. than my simple emotions that I had as a uh, teenager. For you know, a lieutenant in the infantry in Afghanistan, the challenges of how we're going to win the war and, and what victory looked like became more complicated than the tactical maneuvers or overcoming fear with bullets and explosions. So tough war, very difficult to reconcile, especially afterwards in, in the recent events of the past year. But um, it was a good experience because I learned a lot about myself. I was able to at least fulfill this idea that I had of myself as a warrior in combat. And um, I got to meet amazing human beings and, and I was able to give back and serve, which was everything that I wanted to do in life. And especially coming from Spain, to be able to uh, have a way into the, this, this great American nation and sort of feel the, the pride and the, the ownership of, of who we are as a, as a country. Duncan is made for everyone with the determination, the drive, and the guts to do something new or who wants to push their boundaries. It's the fuel for every mission, challenging pursuit or adventure. Whether you're embarking on a new journey or whether you're wrapping up your adventure, you know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And if it's speed you're after, order ahead and it'll be ready when you get there. It's simple, in, out, and on your way. You know, Al, speaking of ownership, you know, you, you really took ownership of your Army experience and obviously did quite well. But what was the dynamic uh, for you in terms of leaving the Army and, you know, your consideration for a future in the service? Because you probably could have kept going, but there may have been factors that 
that convinced you that it was time to move on in a different direction? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was also a very emotional decision and, and, and very, it was a knee-jerk reaction. So, you know, when I looked at my timeline as an officer, everybody has a timeline in their heads of where they're going to be. Basically, when I looked at my future, I was having maybe 12 months of being in front of soldiers and, 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 and being the leader that I envisioned myself being out of five, six years. And so I knew that the war was going to be over. I knew that there was not going to be, uh, there was not going to be a way of us winning it with bombs and bullets. And um, I originally got married and um, I was very unsure that I was going to be moving my wife every three years for the rest of my life, pursuing something that quite frankly was not, was not uh, where my heart was. And so that's when I decided to get out and I started exploring the options and everybody told me that I had to go to an NBA. And that's when the crazy idea of, of playing in the NFL came up. If I had known how to sing, I would have gone to American Idol and I would have <laughs> maybe had a better shot at, uh, at getting the money to pay for, for my NBA. So Al, you, you were signed by Philadelphia in, in May of 2014, but ended up at Pittsburgh. Sounds like it took a while to learn the ropes on an NFL offensive line, but it must have caught on because you ended up playing in two Pro Bowls in 2017, 2018. Tell us about the learning process that took you from a from sort of a baby rookie to being a full-time starter on an NFL offensive line. Yeah, so I never really had a position in college because I played so many different positions. I ended up playing wide receiver my last year at Army. I wasn't really a good football player, and, and a lot of the measurements that you need to play in the NFL, such as your, you know, receiving yards or sacks if you're a defensive player or, you know, your bench and your 40 yard if you're a defensive lineman. I didn't have any of those qualities. Like I said earlier, my goal was to fool the NFL based on this marketing strategy that they had that was so enamored with the military and just play as a backup for a year as I applied to go to business school. Playing football, and the NFL was never a priority in my first few years in the NFL. I was more concerned with not being unemployed like I was right after I left the military and I was living with my in-laws. I was concerned of providing for my family and, and, and getting on the right track. So the NFL requires a lot of attention to detail and it requires uh, a lot of strategy in terms of how are you going to figure out the game? It requires a lot of game theory, and there's a lot of carryover from the military and the, the things that I learned as a ranger or as an infantry officer. So I try to do my best every day. I had amazing coaches. The Pittsburgh Steelers is an amazing organization. I would have never been able to play for any other franchise because, quite frankly, no other franchise gave me the opportunity. And so I went to work every day. I showed up, did what they asked me to do, and then... It wasn't until I finished applying to business schools that I realized I had a chance to maybe make some money and stay in Pittsburgh and potentially apply to Carnegie Mellon. So once I got to that point, things became you know a lot more clear to me. Additionally, and this is a lesson that all service members you know have to keep in mind, I had an issue with my credit score when I got out of the military because I did not do my out processing myself because I was with the Philadelphia Eagles. I was driving back and forth from Philadelphia to Savannah, Georgia, and I was having uh, my XO do my out processing. He put an address on my DD 214 that was a street in Savannah, Georgia. 
the state of Maryland and the zip code of Philadelphia. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you can screw up the only thing that matters in the DD214 any more than, than he did. But the reality is that I didn't have an address either. You know, I, my, my parents were in Spain. I had no family or any friends that, you know, I would trust with putting my DD214 address on. And so I owed $250 of equipment that I'm sure somebody helped themselves with when I was out processing. The Department of Defense issued me a, a debt of $250 that I had to pay. And obviously it landed nowhere for those two years where I was trying to apply for uh, oh, business school. Bureaucracy so went, at its best. <laughs> right, right. So I went to collections, <laughs> it sat there for two years, and then it wasn't until USAA came up with a credit score underneath, you know, somewhere in the, the browser with your credit card that I realized that I had a very, very bad credit score. And that's when I started laughing at the, all the commercials that I saw with creditkarma.com and... <laughs> You know, somebody living in the basement with their parents and whatnot. It put a lot of pressure on me at that point financially because I couldn't rent an apartment. I couldn't apply for a job. I never understood how important your credit score is until it's terrible. And so it created a need. I couldn't apply for a loan to go to business school. Uh, my mm. first year in the NFL was in practice squad, so it didn't give me enough money to cover the expenses of the two, three years that it was going to take me to complete the the course. So the financial need was there and that put a sense of urgency into how to figure, you know, figure out how, to, how I can make some money in the NFL and how I can play football. So fortunately for me, offensive lineman was a more thoughtful or critical thinking position than most other positions in the field that require a lot more athletic ability. And so I was able to find how to play with your peers, with a man to your left and right, had unbelievable teammates that took me under their wing. And so things worked out. So you kind of switched between two different cultures and you commented that there were some similarities between, I guess, how you were thinking in the military and how you could apply that to football. Were there other cultural similarities? Was it a big, was it a big leap from the military to the NFL? Or was it very comfortable? You know, I've lived in so many places throughout my whole life. So it's really interesting to appreciate and see how different cultures operate. And there's also a culture of military and, and, and service in the United States that is very embedded in you know who we are. And, and that goes back to the appreciation that this country has for its military. So when I came to West Point and I started playing football, I was very shocked by certain things about the game of football. First of all, I was blown away by the fact that they were screaming and yelling when we were doing all these drills. They're demanding max effort. They're pushing you from one drill to the next. and the first thing that I thought about was this is just like the military, meaning this is this is basic <laughs> training. You know, they're treating <laughs> players with the same sort of attitude of hierarchy and command and, and you do what I tell you. You know, in Europe it would be inconceivable to start screaming and yelling at kids. You know, it's it's not something that is that is natural. Why are you screaming and yelling at me so much to do these drills? Why are you pitting me against my teammate to see who's tougher? You know, those things were incredibly interesting to me. And then once I got to the NFL, I just saw, you know, how much American football represents American society. So you have the owners who are the, you know, the, the few in society that control and, and have heavy influence over the, the lives of everybody. You have the GMs that are 
establishing a market of players that determines their value and they're able to fit in the pieces with incredible complicated operations of cash flows. You have the head coaches who are politicians. They're telling you a story that everybody has to believe and they have a, a strategy of what they think people care about in order to gain trust and buy in from the players. And then you have, you know, the offensive line who are like the manufacturer industry. They have to work with each other to produce. They have a lot of issues and, and they're always going to get blamed for everything. The skill positions are the hustlers, the, the salesmen, you know, everything is numbers. They just care about numbers. And then you have the most important piece in the football team, the CEO, the quarterback, the person that can make the decisions that matter most and influence the outcome of the game. So the military in football, American society in football are tied in together. And, and it is a beautiful thing to experience. And so for me, I got to see how this passion and this love for the military in the NFL is not something that that is coincidental. It's real. It's maybe something that has to do with the fact that football originated in a time you know, when there was no war, where a lot of people didn't get to serve in World War One, and, and men needed to find a way to prove themselves as warriors. So I know our listeners are going to want to hear a little bit about what it's actually like to be in an NFL football game. So let me ask you, when you walk up to the line of scrimmage, you're looking across at someone who wants nothing more than to bury your $20 million quarterback or CEO in the dirt. Did your time in Afghanistan sort of put that in perspective? And how are you thinking about that kind of risk as you're walking up there and looking across the line at that guy. Yeah, for sure. So I think playing offensive lineman is all about minimizing mistakes and achieving the highest level of consistency is not about an opportunity to explode and, and to make a play like it is for a defensive player. A defensive player, all he wants to do is get one sack per game. Uh, an offensive lineman has to minimize the entire, the, the effectiveness of the opponent throughout the entire game because you don't know which play could result in a sack fumble, which is a catastrophic type of play in, in the football because it gives the ball to the to the opponent. So you have to be perfect every time, and he only has to be successful once. Is that right? Right. <laughs> so it does become more of a mind game, and you're trying to put yourself in the best position every single time to minimize the risk of a catastrophic play. You know, you minimize catastrophic plays. What is the worst thing that can happen in this play? And then you try to adjust to the best of your abilities, but putting yourself always in the best position uh, from the very beginning. So if you line up in a play and it's a pass and you know that you're going to be one-on-one -on -one with the defender, you have to always understand that the shortest route to the quarterback is going to be going through your inside. If he has to go outside and run the loop, it's going to take a little a little longer. So you stay inside out as you protect the quarterback. If you have help and the guard or the player who's to your right is going to be looking at you, then you know that the worst thing that can happen is that he goes to your outside. So you're going to be more aggressive to his outside shoulder. And so utilizing these principles, you could come up with a strategy that would minimize the risk of having catastrophic plays. And that was the mentality that any offensive lineman that plays in the National Football League has to keep in mind throughout the entire game. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons, 
Or, you know, the rest of us 9 to 5 hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow, steeped Dunkin' cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Dunkin' cold brew. You know, watching the games, it seems like the, the most obvious risk and the thing that looks scary to me is just all you big guys on the line facing each other and then colliding. How do you avoid injuries or how do you minimize the risk of an injury? It's remarkable to watch. <laughs> and it's remarkable. You never missed a game, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a saying in the NFL that is very, you know, it left a mark in me. And that was the best ability is availability. You know, if you don't miss any games, if you're able to come to practice every single day, if you're able to keep your body healthy, then it's going to result in a better ability than, than making plays or being a phenomenal football player for two or three games and then having to miss out four or five games. So minimizing injuries, minimizing the time that you're off the field was paramount for any success in the National Football League. I was very fortunate and I'm very lucky. And I, and I cannot say that I had a, a method to minimize those injuries. I did get hurt and I had to play through you know tough injuries throughout my entire career. But there is a concept or there is, especially now that I'm retired and I can look back at my time, there is a, a culture of you know utilizing medicine to get you get ready for games that unfortunately is not the best health practices, you know. So sometimes you have to get a cortisol shot on your knee, on your hip, on your shoulder, so you can be, you know, ready to play. Some players decide not to make such sacrifices because they are not good for the body and they're not good for you. But I always felt that I came from a place that did not have a lot of red carpets and limousines pulling up to the facilities and introducing me. I came from the bottom, and so I always did what I had to do to be out there on Sundays, you know, regardless of how my body felt. And so, you know, injuries happen. You have to learn how to deal with them. And then, you know, for me, the path that I took was the path of medicine. So I took Toradol before every single game, and then if, if I needed it, and cortisol shots so I could be good to go. And, you know, now looking back, obviously, it will be something that I will have to pay for the rest of my life. But it's the trade-offs that we have to pick in life. So is offensive line the, the most dangerous, risky position? It looks like it with the, the clashing that you guys every play into each other. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of debate and, you know, there, there's a lot of force, obviously, in this because players are so big and fast. And I'm sure you know the formula for uh, kinetic energy and how, you know, mass and, and velocity, especially velocity, has, has a, an incredible effect on, on how you're going to absorb his kinetic energy and, and, and how two bodies collide. But according to this formula, you know, velocity does have the, the largest impact. And there's not that much distance between players on the line of scrimmage. However, there's a lot of velocity going in different directions when you look at defensive backs and wide receivers. And so the, the biggest risk, in my opinion, was always when a defenseless receiver, a receiver that's looking at the ball it gets hit by a defensive player. So that was my excuse so that I wouldn't think that I was in the most dangerous position to think that someone else was paying the price. 
but the NFL has been adjusting accordingly because, you know, as a media company, they know they have a lot of negative images yeah. of, of players getting knocked out unconscious and that kills the the younger generations deciding to play football, moms being scared and you know, if there's less players playing, it affects the branding and, and, and how influential football is in, in, in our daily lives. So, you know, Al, you hear so much about the offensive line room on an NFL team being where all the brainy guys are, but it's also maybe a little different culture. And I was privileged to take your Steelers teammate, David DeCastro, on a USO tour. And what a fantastic human being he is. Tell us a little bit about the culture. You were in two different teams, actually three. What is the culture like in that offensive line room uh, compared to maybe the others? I think offensive lines are always going to be the same. I was fortunate enough to play different positions. And I think that's a better question. You know, what is it like to play different positions in the NFL? You know, like I said earlier, when you're a skill player, when you're a wide receiver, the only thing that matters is numbers. There are numbers attached to your name. You know, if you're defensive player they're always going to look at you for how many sacks do you have on the season if you're a wide receiver how many touchdowns and how many yards and if you're an offensive lineman there's not really any numbers that are attached to your performance I mean people can talk about like how many sacks do you give up or those things depend most of the time obviously on on your performance but on the team performance you know if it's the quarterback holding the ball too long is the quarterback getting flushed and getting hit by your guy when when you're not even looking so I thought that playing offensive line is a very selfless position, a position that matters because you're needed to protect other players and you have to learn how to work together. And what matters in that position is not your numbers and is not what people are saying about you is how, you know, what your teammates are saying about you and whether they trust you and whether they want to play with you and whether you're helping them. So relationships matter tremendously in offensive lines. And I got the privilege to play for two amazing offensive lines with amazing human beings. And I think the culture and the, the disposition of offensive linemen to help each other is what defines the position of an offensive lineman. And, and I'm very fortunate that I was able to play offensive linemen because I feel like your ego becomes your biggest enemy when you play other positions that carry a stat or a number next to you throughout your entire career. I would argue that's probably a direct carryover from your time and your experience with the military. You know, that total dependence and reliance and, and that quiet, consistent, reliable presence is more important than superstar status or something. Absolutely. You know, Al, to the layman, it feels like having a super elite passing quarterback at the moment is sort of a necessary, though not sufficient ingredient to achieving success in the NFL. But, you know, there's 32 teams out there and not all 32 teams can have an elite passing quarterback. I think you have some thoughts on that. Do you see any possibility for disruption where a team might rethink the whole concept, spend their money on a running game with passing being subordinate? Or where do you see that going? And You were always a, an advocate for the running game, I think. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. That's an amazing question. I think that we're in the world of football, everybody's tired of experts. So this is just my, my thought on how I view the NFL and how I view the sport. You can achieve that easily in high school, and you can achieve that as well in college. You've seen teams like Alabama, if, if you were to run numbers and you can get the best players running the ball, is the easiest way because you can physically impose yourself on your opponents. But the NFL has these figures, these owners, that are looking at ratings for football games. 
and their understanding that things such as fantasy football and gambling are becoming very a bigger part of the game. And they also understand that if you don't have a good football game all four quarters, you're going to lose a lot of the revenue from the commercials in the second half of the game. And most people do not like to watch teams run the football. Most teams want to see receivers make spectacular catches, reviews, officials looking at the play and having controversy associated with each game, whether it was a touchdown or not. I think that the NFL understands that this is what's selling and this is what matters. And so they're changing the rules to make it easier to pass the ball. They started changing the rules so that defensive uh... so cornerbacks could not press receivers or you know, they made it very difficult for a corner to not get called for holding or pass interference. And that is inciting teams to take more risk as they plan their game plan and to throw in the football more often. So the game has become a passing league and you have to have a quarterback that can win the game in the fourth quarter because they're trying to push all the variables uh, and all the conditions of the game so that you have a tied game towards the end. And if you've been watching football for a long time, you can see how games are becoming, especially this past season, they're becoming more competitive and, and almost all the way through the fourth quarter. So just out of curiosity, does that affect how you approach your job as an offensive lineman, whether you've got a, a running quarterback or a passing quarterback or where these rules are going? For sure. I think most teams identify that you know the passing game is the most crucial part of the game that has to work in order to be a contender for the Super Bowl. If you don't win the Super Bowl, you're going to ultimately get fired regardless of how good you can coach for however many years. Super Bowls is the only thing that matters. And so the passing game becomes the area of the game that you have to develop the most. You know, we talked earlier about sort of your strategy. Yeah, I love running the football, but I made my living being able to pass protect because that's what matters. And that's why, especially if you play left tackle, that's that's what's going to be looked at, you know, when, when evaluating what you can contribute to a football team. So speaking of passing, you caught a touchdown pass in 2018. Uh, that had to be quite an experience for an offensive tackle. Tell us a little bit about that. Nah, it was, you know, I played receiver in college. I can catch the ball and I, and I understand how to move in space and where am I at in relationship with the quarterback of the ball. But the touchdown that I caught was was a, was a trick play, so they were not expecting me to to be wide open. So it was a very, it was from the two-yard line. Like who runs a fake field goal on the two-yard line? It was not as stressful as being able to defend a pass, you know, with two minutes left to win the game. Still had to be cool, though. Nah. nah okay. <laughs> I like your modesty. That comes from your background of service. Uh, now, I know there was a lot of a sort of fun rhetoric uh, that accompanied your move to the Ravens. You know, but what was it really like switching teams? You know, you moved from left tackle to right tackle. You were in a very different system with a completely different quarterback style and a different coach. And you mentioned earlier that offensive lines are fairly similar. But was that a big shift for you, switching teams? Oh, my God, absolutely. It was crazy. I mean, obviously, they're, they're huge rivals. And so it was very awkward in many ways. But I don't have any social media. I'm very disconnected from people that I do not know, mainly because of my nature. You know, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be famous. I'm trying to achieve my, my financial goals of paying for business school. And when it came down to deciding whether I wanted to continue to play, I wanted to buy my parents a house. You know, that was one of the dreams that that I always had because I saw a lot of 
NFL players have this romanticized idea of, of, of why you wanted to play in the NFL, and that's to buy your parents a house. So I wanted to make sure that I was financially set. And then, you know, when it came down to my last year in Pittsburgh and whether I was going to retire or continue to play, I decided to play one more year so that I could buy my parents a house in Rhode Naval Station and I could come visit them. And, you know, I could say that I played football uh, and I made money for something other than myself. The transition to the Baltimore Ravens was, was very easy because John Harbaugh was a coach that utilized a narrative. Uh, you know, we talked about coaches being politicians. He used a narrative that was very similar to general officers in the army, which is we're going to be the toughest. We're going to be trained the hardest. Uh, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. And so the culture aspect of the Baltimore Ravens was very cool to experience and to know what made the Steelers and the Ravens unique. And then living in Baltimore was awesome because my in-laws and my wife is from Maryland. So, you know, we have four kids and, and being able to, to have help was crucial because during the season, I'm, I'm unable to, to be around, especially on the weekends when, I, when I'm playing away. Al, I have to ask, because I have been curious the whole time we've been talking to you, your journey has been, I'm going to do everything I can to get to the point where I can pay for getting an MBA. Why an MBA? What is your goal with the MBA? Because you've been very focused on that since, since West Point, actually. Right. I think West Point is, is the reason why. I think there's a, a culture surrounding West Point cadets. You know, Just like being infantry was one of the things that people coveted. I, I feel like I made decisions based on what everybody else thought was the the path to success. So everybody thought in high school that going to West Point was a very good decision because it would increase your chances of success. Uh, everybody thought that being infantry would increase your chances of success. And actually, infantry is the the route, the fastest route to become a general. Most generals are usually infantrymen. That's, you know, from what I heard is the reason why they started letting uh, women into the infantry because there were not that many female generals. So they had to be able to open that door. So the infantry is the fastest way to success. And then when you get out of West Point, you realize that it's not as easy as you thought it was. And the path to success is to be able to get an MBA and be able to sit down in front of companies that are hiring these MBA programs uh, so that you can continue on with your future. Have you finished it yet? I finished it. Yeah, I finished. Yay! Congratulations! I finished it, yeah, I finished, well, I finished it. You know, a few years ago. Uh, usually, it takes a year and a half for full times, and it takes you know maybe two or three for part timers. But it took me almost four years because I was <laughs> I was unable yeah. to take the same workload as as my peers. And now that you've finished it, you've got a pretty good skill set, right? You've got Army Ranger, you've got NFL offensive lineman, you've got a quality MBA from Carnegie Mellon. What comes next? You're going to relax for a while or uh, is it you know ready to charge forward? Yeah, I was talking to Sandra about this before the call. It's, it's fascinating how not just at West Point, but just in American society, we're always thinking about work. And work is a trait that has uh, defined not just the majority of uh, Americans who've migrated from, from Europe uh, into the United States, but sort of, you know, who we've become, you know, we're, we're a society of workers and we're always constantly trying to uh, improve our position and, and, and keeping up with the Joneses and, and, and all the sayings <laughs> and the things that we have. Fortunately or unfortunately for me, I, I, I am Spanish and the Spanish don't have the same philosophy. They have a philosophy that is a lot more laid back and it's a lot more focused around maybe self-improvement. And perhaps that's where they get to live 
you know, 150 years old. So as of right now, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. I just retired last week. So maybe if you ask me uh, in a couple months, I'll have a better answer. But as of right now, I'm, I'm relocating to Miami, Florida. It's a city that I fell in love with when I came to the United States. And, uh, and it definitely embodies the vision that I had of, of individuality and, and lack of collective groups. And so once I get settled, when I have the urge or the need to, to do something, I'm sure it'll, it'll drive me to diving into the next adventure. You know, Al, as long as you're following your passions and your interests, you're successful, right? Any other definition of success is irrelevant. So you have a wonderful journey ahead of you. Yeah, it's the journey, not the destination. Right. Well, Al, you know, we could talk to you for another hour. This has been really fascinating for, for both of us. But we do probably have to wrap up. And I just want to thank you so much uh, for being with us today in the Adrenaline Zone. I know you hear this a lot and it can be cliche, but I want to tell you thank you so much for your service in the U.S. Army. I'm proud to know you. I look forward to cooking a paella with you someday. And we both wish you the very best in what is uh, certain to be a pretty interesting future ahead of you. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your service. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. That was NFL offensive tackle and former Army Ranger Alejandro Villanueva. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Many thanks to our sponsor, Duncan. Duncan fuels the people who take on every challenge head first. And we know the right kind of fuel they need, an ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. If you like our show, be sure to follow us and write a review and tell your friends about us. And if you have a suggestion for an adrenaline seeker we might want to interview, visit our website at theadrenalinezone.com. 